But we're so glad you're here this morning. And I want to begin today by asking a question, a rhetorical question. Have you ever noticed that we often think we're more qualified for things than really other people think? In fact, one person was having a disagreement about that because he thought he was really uh, should have been thought about for a particular position at work. And he was upset with his boss and someone said, well, I've got some advice for you. You just go tell your boss what you think and the truth will set you free. <laughs> well, what makes you qualified? What, why do we often think of ourselves as more qualified than perhaps we really truly are? I saw an application, a teenage boy filled out an application for lifeguard. And when it asked the question, well, is there any further information that you can provide that helps us understand why you might be more qualified, why you might be qualified for this job? He said, depth of pool, six feet, six inches deep. Height of applicant, six feet, seven inches. I'm thinking, okay, son, if that makes you qualified, go for it. Well, we define characteristics of qualification a lot of different ways. Most men see themselves as six foot eight, 250 pound ball of muscle that we can just do anything to protect our family. But we're not quite there, are we? None of us really are. But we see ourselves in different ways than others do. No doubt about it. There were people who argued about Jesus' qualifications to be the Messiah. Why do you think you're qualified? How could you believe that? Why, why would we want to support you or see you as qualified as the Messiah? So there were deep questions about his qualifications as the Messiah. There was much understanding about his qualification. Well, as we look at our text for this morning... John chapter 7, go ahead and turn there, John chapter 7, as we continue looking at every verse in the book of John. It's been my excitement, uh, really for the first time, to teach through this entire book. I've preached from it in so many ways over the years, but I'm excited to continue it even today. Now, in John chapter 7, it's about what's called a Feast of Tabernacles, and we'll come to that in just a moment. But in the Feast of Tabernacles, there are three sections dealt with in John 7. There's the before it began, 1 through 10. We'll come next week to the midst or the middle part, 11 through 36. And then after the last day of the feast, in the latter part of John chapter 7. So in the midst of those divisions of time, there were three responses. Disbelief, which we will study about today debate and division disbelief we'll study that today debate and division so look with me just to the first 10 verses of John chapter 7 there it says after these things Jesus walked in Galilee for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him was Jesus afraid no he had no cowardice in him. We'll come to that in just a moment. Now the Jews, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also will see the works that you are doing. 
For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. But your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Then verse 10, we'll stop there. But when his brothers had gone up, Then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. First of all, I want you to see the context of this particular situation. And the context is, first of all, the Feast of Tabernacles. So point number one, if you've got it in your little bulletin or want to write it down, is see the context. Well, what what I mean by that? Well, what was the Feast of Tabernacles? It was one of the mandated feast days or feast weeks, actually, that they held to commemorate the time when they came out of Egypt. The desert wanderings, the the time when they were sustained by God. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was an exciting experience. The people actually lived that week in kind of tent-like structures called booths made out of uh, just sticks to remind them of what it was like when they lived in the desert. Uh, They had candles burning all over the temple complex that reminded them of the light that God led them by day and night to take them from place to place. There was water that they would go and get from the pool of Siloam and bring it up and pour it out as a sacrifice that reminded them of how God brought water even out of a rock there in the desert. So the Feast of Tabernacles was a a celebratory time. It was exciting. Uh, People liked it. It was a wonderful time. Uh, But in the midst of that, we have to say it was a difficult time for Christ because this was the beginning of what we would call militant opposition. Now remember as we studied back in chapters 5 and 6, We saw the people come to him in mass as he fed them. Oh, they were excited because he gave them lots to eat. But then when he began speaking about hard things, they began to move away. And by the time we ended our last chapter, we saw that it was down to a very few people. So now we see the beginning of what would be called a militant opposition. He had a target on his back. The Jewish authorities are after him. They're looking for a way to discredit and to destroy him. And so that's the context of what we're reading about in these 10 verses. Now, I'll admit these 10 verses are probably not the most exciting you'll ever read because they're somewhat of a story, uh, a chronology. But I think it contains some great things for us today. So second, let's see the progression of Jesus' ministry. See the progression, particularly in verse 3. We see an interesting and revealing dialogue between Jesus and his brothers. You say, wait a minute, what do you mean Jesus and his brothers? We're not talking about spiritual, we're talking about physical brothers. Both in Matthew and Mark, the Bible says, Mary later had other children. 
and he had some brothers. Now, they were half-brothers because they shared the same mother but not the same father because Joseph was the father and we know the Holy Spirit was the father of Jesus. But he has this interesting dialogue with his half-brothers who did not yet realize the uniqueness of Christ. And so in verse 3, his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works of that which you are doing. They knew about his miracles. And so bottom line, they're saying, Okay, now Jesus, now listen. We're your brothers, and we got you back. But listen, this crowd stuff, you got to do a better job. you got to get more people. And if you just go down there to Jerusalem and do what we saw you do up there in Galilee, people are going to flock to you, man. You bring out all that loaves and fishes stuff. You start raising people up from sickness. You do all that. And Jesus, listen, you're going to have a crowd. Don't you worry, man. You're going to have more people than you know what to do with. And so they looked at it in a very secular, shallow kind of way. He said, no. No, that's not what I am going to do. Well, he has this argument in essence, and some even think in verse 3 they were really making fun of him to some level or some degree. But what was the deal with his brothers? Were they dull? Were they obtuse, purposefully uh, slow in receiving these truths? Well, listen, sometimes we... Have you ever heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? It's often said that sometimes we're so close to a situation, we can't see it like others who have a, have a different view of things. Perhaps that's what happened, I don't know. But here were men going up to the religious feast, Jesus' half-brothers, and they had the Messiah in their midst, but they were rejecting him. And he is now facing Jewish traditional leaders who are actively seeking to destroy him. From the world's point of view, they're saying, listen, Jesus, you ought to use your opportunities better. You ought to put on a better show, and you might get a better crowd. His opportunity was coming, they would say, to recoup the losses that he'd already experienced. Didn't this sound a little bit like what Another gospel tells us happened in the temptation experience where Satan actually came to Christ and said, if you do all these things, everybody will follow you. But friends, listen to me right now. Jesus was saying to them, I'm not about trying to win a crowd. I'm trying to save people's souls. You see, he was after a totally different thing than making a name for himself or bringing about some great crowd to give him great adulation. He was saying, I'm in this so that I can die for them. My time has not yet come. You see, Christ was not in in any way frightened of the religious leaders. He was not a coward, and we will see that later in a powerful way. But he said, my time has not yet come. It's not time yet for me to reveal myself there in Jerusalem. The brothers are saying, man, down there, you can make a big show. That's not what I am about. He'd already turned down the crowd's offer, remember, to make him king. Well, 
celebrities might ride to success on the applause of others, but Jesus simply was not about that. What he is saying there in verse 7 and 8, he is saying, I'm on a divine timetable. I'm on a divine timetable, and I've got to do exactly what the Father wants me to do. Isn't it interesting that history reveals that often it's the religious experts who oppose the things of God most. And that's exactly what was happening here. Even his own brothers as well as the religious leaders. Well, after his family was gone, it says in verse 10, he quietly goes on down to Jerusalem because he knows he must go. He's got things that will happen there. But he does it after they've left because he doesn't need them constantly trying to encourage the wrong motive. So last, I want you to glean with me some spiritual truths that are in this passage. First of all, I think we see a beautiful illustration of that divine tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Wouldn't you agree with me that the father had a grand plan for his son? Of course we believe that. We agree with that. He had a grand plan and he kept saying over and over, My will doesn't matter. The Father's will is what matters. My will is to do the will of Him who sent me. And over and over He kept saying, I'm here to do the will of the Father. Even that being said, Jesus knew He had to be sensitive to the plan of the Father. God had a sovereign will. He had something He wanted to be done. So Jesus could neither rush nor lag behind God's timetable. To rush it would cause problems. To lag behind it would be difficult. And so he pointed out over and over, I must do what the Father has told me to do in the timing that God wants it done. Now, wouldn't you agree that's true for us as well? We sometimes can rush God's plan or sit behind God's plan. We know what God wants in our lives, but there is a human choice, a free will choice that is involved in this process. We too can be intimately connected with the Father. In fact, let me say to you this, we can be so close to Him that His plan, His plan can be followed, yes, according to His timetable. On Wednesday nights, we've been doing a discipleship time, and we've been talking about first chair Christianity. Different way of looking at it. One author used that phrase, and I picked it up, and I thought, this is well said. A first chair Christian is someone who is so intimately connected with the Father that they really want the same things as the Father. Now, is anybody perfect in that way at all times? I'm not. But should that not be our goal, that we become a first chair Christian? We sit in that chair listening to Him, loving Him, so that His timetable is our timetable. Now, it's not easy. It takes a lot of maturation, maturing in the Lord. But that's what God wants for us. Jesus exemplified it perfectly. I mean, what the Father wants is what I want. I've got to go according to His timetable. Is that what you want? Is that what you wish in your life? Do you wish to be on God's timetable? Do you wish to be so intimately connected with Him that you want what He wants? I pray that's what you want. I do. But we're often tempted to do God's work according to man's perspective and according to man's motive. 
In verse 3, we saw again, his brothers are trying to say, okay, Jesus, we're here to help you. You just go down there to Jerusalem. You can make a, you can make a big splash. But that would be using a wrong motive. I mean, uh, maybe the right motive, but a wrong methodology. You know, in church work, I'm not going to use specifics, but we have to be careful. You know, we're in a 21st century world. You know that. And we want to use methods that reach people today. We really do. And, and there are methods that reach people today better than perhaps they did in the, than other methods that we used in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. For example, let me just go one specific. There was a day in time that if I were to go out in front of this church house and put a sign saying, Prayer meeting! The next three weeks, every night, come to the prayer meeting. You think this place would be filled up? No. People would avoid it like the plague. Can you get people to pray? Yes. Do you remember when churches used to have protracted meetings? No, you don't. You're too young. But that's a word that was used for revivals. Now, I like revivals, and we're going to have one next spring. We really are. But there was a day and time when if you put a sign out in front of the church house and it said, come to our revival meeting starting Sunday morning, going through next whatever, I mean, people would come. I mean, they really would show up, uh, not only believers, but non-believers. I mean, it, it was just the thing. It was the thing to do. Now you put a sign up and say, revival meeting. Come on, somebody. Anybody, please. There are different methods to reach people now. But we've got to be careful. Those methods work according to God's perspective and God's ability. You see, there are methods that may be less than godly in their motive. They may be less than godly in their perspective. So we've got to be cautious in a modern world that we do what we do that really works, but it works in a way that brings glory to God and is not something improper. And that may be confusing to you, but I'm just simply saying that, yes, we're often tempted to do God's work in a way that's our way. And we've got to say, God, I want to do what you want in your way. I've got to do what you want according to your timetable, but, yes, according to your heart. God, I want to do what you want me to do. So we've already seen in this text and other texts that we've been studying an amazing array of responses to the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw in an earlier chapter, people were awed by him. And then we saw some people confused by him. And then we saw people flock to him. And then we saw people leave him. And now we see people do not believe him. Even his own brothers did not believe in him those responses continue today those same responses continue in the 21st century what will be your response I pray today you'll be able to say with me I will follow Jesus not just for the miracles but for the salvation I will follow Jesus not just for the 
food that he can give me, but because he loved me first. I will follow Jesus for the right reason and not for some kind of self-seeking, shallow reason. I'm going to follow him, period. I'm going to follow him in the good times and in the bad times. I'm going to follow him when it's easy, and I'm going to follow him when it's not easy. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to believe him, and I'm going to follow him for the right reasons and in the right way. Do you agree with that? Amen. Pray with me. Father God, we do come. And unlike the physical brothers, half-brothers of the Lord Jesus, Father, we believe. We believe. And we follow you today. We follow you when it's good, when it's bad. We follow you when it's easy, when it's not. We follow you when there's grief surrounding us and when there's joy surrounding us. We follow you, Father. Oh God, we thank you that you continue to forgive us. We thank you that you continue to pardon us. We thank you that you continue to love us even when we don't love ourselves. Lord Jesus, right now, I pray for every person in this room. God, you've brought people here today for a reason, for a cause. And I don't know everybody's heart. You do. But I do pray right now for every person in this place that this would be a time of absolute submission to you. That we'd say, Father, I want to follow, I want to follow Jesus. I do. I believe and I follow I believe and I follow. May that be our prayer, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.